BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. This is the California Report magazine. I'm Aditi Bandlamudi, in for Sasha Koka. My family is proudly South Indian, from the southern state of Andhra Pradesh. My dad used to say, we're not just Indians, we are Andhra. That cultural identity translated into almost every facet of my life. The classic dish, polihara, which is tamarind rice with peanuts, was what we used to bring on picnics. I studied classical Carnatic music, one of the most popular genres in Andhra Pradesh. When I was a kid, I wore a pattu pavade, this silk dress Andhra girls wear. All these elements became part of the way I understood my specific hyphenated identity as an Indian American. But a few years ago, my grandmother told my mom that, ancestrally, our family was actually from Kashi, a city in the northern state of Uttar Pradesh, kind of close to Nepal. It turns out our ancestors faced religious persecution there and then traveled south to Andhra Pradesh. This revelation made me question whether I could even say I'm Andhra anymore. A lot of us think we understand our family history, but there's often stuff we don't know. And those details can really change the way we think about who we are. Corey Suzuki recently learned a version of his family history he had never heard before. It made him question everything he knew. This story comes from our friends at NPR's Code Switch. Here's Corey. Can you just tell me what you see? It's a big ship. Someone is on the ship waving. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, little girl. (laughs) This is my Obachma, my grandma. I'm asking her to describe a drawing that's been in my family for years, one that I've never really been able to get out of my head. It shows a little girl standing on the railing of a ship. In my memory of the drawing, she stares out over the water. Her straight black hair dances in the wind. Very lonesome (laughs) picture, isn't it? (laughs) And this is, this is you. Mm Mm-hmm. This was me. (laughs) This drawing is of Obachima as a little girl, coming to America from Japan in 1949. For four years, Japan and the United States had been at war. I'd heard Obachima tell these stories. She and her parents were living in Tokyo, right in the firing line. Some nights they would watch as Allied bombers passed overhead and the city glowed orange. In this drawing, the war is over, and Obachima, just 16 years old, is on her way to California, alone. For the longest time, I thought this was the moment, the one that so many descendants of immigrants hear about, 
the moment our families made the journey to this country. What I saw in that drawing was a lonely moment, but also a moment of hope, of leaving war-torn Japan and forging a new life in the United States. It wasn't until high school that I asked Obachima about it. I wanted to know what it was like to be born and raised in Japan. But her response shocked me. I was born in San Francisco, California, August 1932. That was the day I learned that Obachima was not born in Japan. She was born in California, an American citizen, in the heart of the West Coast. When I learned this, I didn't know what to think. It was like my whole sense of where I came from had been turned inside out. I always thought Obachima was Japanese, but really she was Japanese-American. That drawing of that little girl on the ship, it wasn't of someone making the journey to a new country. It was a picture of someone making their way home. I had so many questions. Why did Obachima and her parents end up leaving the United States? What was it like to grow up on the other side of the war? What was it like to come back? And then Obachima told me something else. There were others, she said. This wasn't just her story. There were thousands of people, tens of thousands, Japanese Americans who were in Japan when the imperial Japanese government attacked Pearl Harbor and who were stranded on the wrong side of the ocean. For generations, one story has defined what it means to be Japanese American. It's the story of the incarceration during World War II, of when the government of the United States uprooted more than 100,000 people of Japanese ancestry from their homes along the West Coast and forced them into federal incarceration camps. Of a group of people who spent their entire lives trying to prove that they didn't deserve this injustice, trying to prove how American they really were. This is the flip side of that story. It's the story of my Obachima's journey from San Francisco to Tokyo and back again. It's the story of a group of Japanese Americans who, instead of being forced to bury their Japanese heritage, were cut off from their American identity. And it's the story of me trying to figure out where I really come from and what it actually means to be Japanese American. Obachima still lives in Richmond, just across the bay from San Francisco, with my parents and the house where I grew up. Some parts of the house have changed since then. Others, like Obachima's room with its stacks of books and greeting cards and picture frames, are the same. Hi. Oh, your room looks so clean. <laughs> I didn't want you to come in here. <laughs> it really was not that bad. We sat down on her bed, surrounded by her books and photographs, and I asked her to start at the beginning. I went to uh, kindergarten in San Francisco, which is called Kimmongakuen, Golden Gate Kindergarten. I didn't study English too much. They were more or less teaching Japanese. It was the three of them, Obachima, her mother, and her father. They were living in San Francisco in the 1930s, when a lot of Japanese people were working on farms or cleaning houses. My father was ambitious, and what they did was... Uh, making Japanese produce, because at that time, there were quite a few Japanese immigrants in San Francisco and bringing Japanese produce to San Francisco was a good business. Obachima loved San Francisco. There was the fog in the rolling hills. There were the holidays, like Christmas, where the city would sparkle with light. 
But there was nothing like the crisp spring day that five-year-old Abachma got to walk across the Golden Gate Bridge for the first time, the very day it opened. Can you tell me about um, walking across the, the bridge for the first time? <laughs> 1937. Weather was nice. You know how a bridge is always cold. Yeah, so many people. And San Francisco people were always well-dressed. There were videos of the day. It was May, 1937. The sky was clear. Fleets of planes droned overhead. Thousands of people had gathered to walk across the bridge for the first time. When I came to the center of the bridge, looking up, it's very, very unbelievable how people could build that. San Francisco was a beautiful place to live, but it wasn't the easiest. Local labor groups organized protests against immigration from Japan. The city's school board had threatened to segregate students from Japanese families and bar them from white primary schools. The California legislature had passed a law meant to stop the Issei, the first generation of Japanese immigrants from owning land. Issei people who came from Japan first, they had such a anti-Japanese discrimination and they couldn't uh, have children to have a higher education and they couldn't even buy the house property. So Issei people encouraged children to go to Japan. Historian Brian Nia has spent years studying Japanese-American history. And he told me that for all kinds of reasons, thousands of Nisei, Mayobashima's generation, are turning to Japan at this time. A lot of the kind of Nisei with college degrees and so forth Go, go there because that's the only place they could get a, get a job uh, commensurate with their qualifications. Uh, and then for many younger Nisei, their parents, especially if they have means, send them to Japan for ed- to, to be educated, feeling that if they're bilingual, bicultural, they just have a better chance going forward. A lot of people, Brian says, also went back for family reasons. One of my wife's uh, cousins, she was born in Tacoma, then at age 13, gets sent to Japan to take care of a, of a grand, grandmother or grandfather who's not well. For a while, Obachima's parents didn't feel like they had to leave California. The produce business was going well, and it seemed like things were stable. Then they got the news. Obachima's grandmother, back in central Japan, was sick. Her health was failing fast. So in 1937, the same year they walked across the Golden Gate Bridge, Obatama's parents told her they needed to talk. They had to leave San Francisco. They were going back to Japan. We were just visiting half a year or one year. That plan, to stay for half a year, maybe one year, stretched into two, then three. And then in the winter, they heard that something had happened. At that time, we didn't have TV, so radio was our only source. Japan had attacked a U.S. Navy base called Pearl Harbor. Obachima remembers being confused. 
She was still just nine years old, and she didn't understand what the news meant. But Obachima's mother was worried. They should have left Japan earlier, she said to Obachima. There was no way they could get back to San Francisco now. She liked the America some, So she was so regretful. She didn't come back before, you know. And uh, she said, I'm going to put the American flag on the top of the roof <laughs> so they don't drop the <laughs> bomb, which was a very ridiculous <laughs> thing. They didn't actually end up putting a flag on the roof. For a few months, things were quiet. It was winter in Tokyo. Obachima and her parents were living in an industrial part of the city. She was going to school, and her father was working in a factory, something to do with electrical cords, she says. They stayed with other workers in factory housing. Then, in the spring, the United States hit back. They launched their own surprise attack, a retaliatory air raid on Tokyo. Planes sweep in without being discovered. They separate into groups to attack the several objectives carefully selected by means of accurate intelligence. They targeted factories and industrial areas to ensure that only targets of military value will be hit. Obachima remembers putting everything they could carry on a small cart and running. We didn't have truck or anything, so we put the immediate necessity on the wagon, and we start running, and I still remember fire just getting closer and closer as we moved in. I should say here, Obachima doesn't go around casually telling these stories about living through the war. But when she does, she doesn't shy away from them. She tells them with a smile, sometimes a laugh. I don't know why that's how she tells these stories, about terrible things that happened at the hands of American soldiers. Maybe it's just because this is what things were like when she was growing up in Japan. These are her middle school stories, her childhood memories. Anyway, the company housing, Obachima says it was all burned. They couldn't go back. Instead, she and her parents moved in with another family, the Takemuras, who lived across the city. It was a lonely time for Obachima. The Japanese government was starting to evacuate children and older people to the countryside to try and get them out of the path of future bombings. Obachima's parents asked her if she wanted to go. I wanted to go because I'm the only child and uh, to live with everybody's kind of so nice. And I volunteer and my parents agreed and uh, <laughs> I went. But she wasn't there for long. Soon, her parents came after her. <laughs> and they say, if we have to die from bombing and whatever war, they wanted to stay together, you know, family. And so I had to come back to Tokyo. As the war continued, life in Japan got worse and worse. Food and other supplies were hard to find. We were lucky, only three of us in the family, but people didn't have enough to eat. And clothes, you cannot buy anything, you know. Of course, no candy. It was getting worse. Even during all of this, there were also moments where things felt normal. Obachima kept going to class. 
Every day, she would commute from Setagaya, where the Takamuras lived, to her school in the center of Tokyo. She would take a train to Shibuya Station, where she would catch a streetcar to the school. There were exams and homework. We had an English subject, but I hated. <laughs> I was very bad student. But the war also brought complex feelings. At home, Obachima remembers her mother speaking out against the Japanese government. At school, she says, they were taught loyalty to Japan. We were all brainwashed. And uh, we were told England and U.S., they were the enemy to us. Uh-huh. So. so you felt Japanese? Mm-hmm. During the war, eh? still remembered San Francisco, though, too. She thought often about Christmas and Halloween and going to her kindergarten. That was the one thing she knew for sure. She wanted to go back to California. Across Japan, tens of thousands of other stranded Japanese Americans were also living through the war. Researchers say their experiences varied. Some lived in the countryside, isolated from the violence of the war. Some were conscripted into the Japanese military. Historian Brian Nia, again. Conditions are getting really bad, and here are more mouths to feed, and there are Americans on top of that, you know, who in some ways are being blamed for this whole predicament. You know, a really sad part of the story is that, of course, Hiroshima is one of the main prefectures that Japanese immigrated from to the U.S. And of course, many of them ended up back in Hiroshima. We know what happened next. Nine days after American forces bombed Hiroshima, Obachima and her parents heard there was going to be an announcement. People told us to listen to the radio 12 noon. They tuned in. At first... It was just static. Then, a voice. What's the first time we heard the emperor's voice on the radio? He was very sorry. We were surrounded and told us it's the end of the war. No more suffering. In September of 1945, when Obachima was just 13 years old, Japan surrendered. American planes started to land, carrying soldiers and military equipment, and they also carried something else, hundreds of American movies. The very first American movie I saw was Madame Curie. It's a nice movie theater used to be, but all the chairs were burned, so we sat on the concrete where used to be chairs were <laughs> placed. If we can prove the existence of this new element, it may enable us to look into the secret of life itself deeper than ever before in the history of the world. Across the ocean, the government's incarceration of Japanese Americans in the U.S. was also ending. One by one, the camps closed down. People were handed what would be about $350 today and were put on trains bound for the West Coast. 
When I think about this moment, I think of a tide. Thousands of people, like Obachima, swept across the ocean for years. But now, the water was turning. The current was calling them back. It was April 1949 when Obachima was finally able to get passage on a ship to California. Her parents, who had never been American citizens, had to stay in Japan. But a distant relative in San Jose said they could take Obachima in. Everybody wanted to come to America, you know, because of the influence of those movies and American lives. But for me, I still remember childhood memory from San Francisco, so I wanted to come. So one morning, Obachima went down to the docks. It was a bright spring day. She said goodbye to her friends and stepped out over the water onto the deck of an American ship. She was 16 years old and finally heading back to the United States. Once I got on the ship, of course, I started feeling, uh, I felt sorry for my parents, you know. Obachima was sad to be leaving her parents behind, but a big part of her was also thrilled. She was so excited to be going home. The ship was called the USS General Gordon. It was a very plain army ship, and I got stuck getting seasick in the bottom of the <laughs> ship. and But it didn't bother too much when you were only 16. It was a long trip, two weeks across the ocean. So Obachima started getting to know the other passengers. She was surprised to find out that a lot of them were like her, Japanese-Americans who had been stranded in Japan. I was treated very well because I was the youngest, and they looked after me. Halfway through their trip, the ship docked in the Hawaiian Islands. Obachima spent a day wandering around Honolulu with the other former strandees. We had one day we could see city, and I still remember how pineapple was delicious, and we had a good time. And finally, we had to get on the ship again. After two weeks, the moment came that Obachima had been waiting for for what felt like her entire childhood. In the distance, they could see land. Obachima stood on the deck of the ship and watched as her California appeared over the horizon. It was the scene from that drawing, the one I had been thinking about for what felt like my entire childhood, of that little girl on the deck of a ship staring out over the water. That image of hope. But all Obachima felt was sadness. When I saw Golden Gate Bridge on the deck, I started crying because uh, I didn't want to get off the ship. Everybody was so nice. <laughs> I had to say goodbye to all the friends. After everything, after years of running from bombs and burning buildings, of waking up hungry and tired, of trying to survive long enough to make it back to the United States, all she wanted to do was to stay with the other Japanese Americans on that ship. She knew that once they got off, everyone was going to go their separate ways. And she was right. 
Still, every Japanese American who had been on that ship, every Japanese American who had been stranded in Japan, had something to share now. There was a new name for them. Can you read it one more time? Kibei Nisei. Ki means a return. Bei means a, a abbreviation of Beikoku, which is America. And Ni is a number two. Say is a generation, second generation. Return to America. Return to America. The Kibei Nisei. The generation who left and came back. I guess, um, like, who, what do you, you know, what do you, what do you consider yourself? Like, are you Japanese? Are you American? Are you Japanese-American? Um, Japanese-American. Japanese-American. Not complete American, not complete Japanese. Kibei Nisei. I think the general story of Japanese Americans in Japan during World War II is kind of the biggest unexplored episode in the history of Japanese Americans. Historian Brian Nia. It just does not fit this, the kind of standard grand narrative of going to concentration camps, the 442nd resettlement. I mean, the, the, the grand story, the farewell to Manzanar story, you know, the Kibei, they're not part of that. This is really a story that we need to know a little bit more about and that kind of complicate our understanding of the whole Japanese-American story. <laughs> Where are we? Golden Gate Bridge. <laughs> Last August, my sister and I took Obachima to walk across the Golden Gate Bridge. We do it every year for her birthday. And every year, it's cold. Like that day she walked across for the first time back in 1937. How are you feeling? Okay, fine. Are you excited? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> what does it look like? Beautiful. Beautiful, beautiful. I wonder if I can do it next year. As we walked out over the water, the clouds split and the sun came through. I've been thinking about something Obachima said earlier, about how she cried when they finally got back to the US. What I was expecting to hear next, what I was waiting to hear next, was that those were tears of joy, that she was so happy to be back. But that wasn't it. She was crying because she didn't want to say goodbye to the other Kibei Nisei on board with her. She didn't know when she was going to be able to see them again. I think I get what she meant now. I used to think she looked so lonely in that drawing, standing there on the deck of the ship. But I realize now that she wasn't alone. Those other people on the ship, they understood. She didn't need to explain anything to them about her life, about the things that had happened, about what it was like. They already knew. We drove back across the bridge and went home. 
That was reporter Corey Suzuki. That's it for our show this week. Thanks to Shireen Marisol Maraji, Ethan Toven Lindsay, Lisa Armstrong, and Quina Kim for editing help with the story. Thanks also to Scott Kurashige, Michael Jin, and Naoko Wake. Katrina Schwartz is our interim senior editor, and Susie Racho is our director producer. Chris Hoff and Brendan Willard mix this show. Our intern is Olivia Zhao. I'm Aditi Bandlamudi, in for Sasha Koka. And this is the California Report Magazine. Your state, your stories. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.